morning, everybody. Hey, if you're at home, thanks for saying good morning and hello, and, and uh, it is so good to be with you. Here we are, and um, we're in our series in the Revelation of Jesus. If we haven't met, I'm Jose. We want to welcome all of you who are watching online. For those of you here on site, it's just good to be alive. And a week after Easter, Easter is one of those high points for us because it's the hope that Jesus is really alive, then that means we're really going to live with him. That means that life has a bit of perspective because this isn't everything, which means I can endure some hard times because I know where God is taking the world. And that is the message of Easter as well. Um, the revelation of Jesus, what we're looking at, is a book of hope. It's a book of profound hope. Here, here's why. What we get is, we celebrated last week, Jesus rose, but then whatever we do about all the time, Jesus said he's going to come back. He ascended. He's ruling the universe. It doesn't seem like it, though. Does it seem like Jesus is ruling the universe? Well, because if he is, how come there's so much evil? How come there's so, so much suffering? How come there's so much heartache? How, how come we're going through such tough times if Jesus is risen and really ruling? Is he really good when there's so much evil in the world? How do we wrestle with that? Well, we're given the final book in the Bible, which gives us insight, doesn't give us everything, insight into how everything is going to end and how God's going to answer the question ultimately of what do we do with all of the brokenness and evil and sin in our world. What we've looked at so far, and Steve, uh, the week before Easter, did such a great job in helping us to see what this judgment section is about. It is about a righteous king who's going to bring an end to evil in the world. So if you've been tracking with us in the Revelation for a while, we've been in a really strange section. The beginning, letters to churches, everyone gets. The end, uh, this message of the new heavens and the new earth and the beauty, we get that. It's the middle that's tricky because there's three sets of seven. We've seen it, right? They're the seven seals that affect like a quarter of the earth. There's the seven trumpets, right? And that affects like a third of the earth. Then we saw the seven bowls, which affects all of the earth. Um, because the early community, when they read the Revelation, they read the whole thing in one setting. You kind of picked up on the cues. Seven of this, bad. Seven of this, worse. Seven of this, wow, really, really hard. And it speaks to what God is doing and what he will do. God is already seeing good and evil. He's already seeing right and wrong. And he is dealing with it in ways we don't see. But the seven bowls, as you saw from a couple weeks ago, is about ultimate. In the end, this good, just, loving God is going to finally deal with all of the evil in the world. Now, what we see now, that was up to chapter 16. What we see now, though, we're going to look at chapter 17, 18, and part of 19, is a snapshot. So John gets his vision, judgment, judgment, final judgment, and then he doesn't give us something new. What we're going to read, if you read it quickly, you think, oh, this is another thing. No, this is actually like a laser focus, a flashlight on part of what God's good judgment, by the way, it's good, uh, I think Steve used the, the analogy of a harsh one, but the analogy, if someone saw a violent crime against someone, a father, a violent crime against their daughter, what would you do? You would stop it. 
you would stop that person. It's not like everyone's just nice and perfect and good and God is vicious and harsh and mean. No. Our heart and our lives are messed up. And, and a good loving God, a good loving just judge steps in and puts an end. What we're going to see is what he's putting an end to. So let's just do this. We're going to read all of 17. We're going to read part of 18. We're going to read part of 19. I'm going to give some comments, but on the end, I want you to hang on. This is a lot. I, trust me. But we want to read it all in one sweeping form because there are at least three implications you cannot miss. Okay? So if you get lost in the details, take the nap now and, and pick me up at the end in a few minutes. All right. Chapter 17, verse 1. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, come, I will show you the punishment of the great prostitute, visual imagery, we'll get into that, who sits by many waters with her kings of the earth, uh, with her king, the kings of the earth committed adultery and the inhabitants of the earth were intoxicated with the wine of her adultery. So you got a prostitute, you have drunkenness, you have adultery, what's going on? It all makes sense, right? No, it doesn't. Keep reading. Then the angel carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. And there I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast. So you have a prostitute and now you have a beast. That was covered with blasphemous names and had seven heads and ten horns. And the woman was dressed in purple and scarlet, glittering with gold, precious stones and pearls. And she held a golden cup in her hand, filled with the abominable things and the filth of her adulteries. So you have this graphic imagery of this lavish, this was like rich person's attire. Really wealthy, really extravagant, but really gnarly woman. Look at the name that's written on her forehead. On her forehead was a mystery. Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and the abominations of the earth. Make sense? No, it doesn't. Okay, so don't even pretend. It doesn't make sense, but it's a picture. Verse 6 is helpful. I saw that the woman was drunk with the blood of God's holy people. The blood of those who bore the testimony of Jesus. Wow, that's, that's a visual. When I saw her, I was greatly astonished. And the angel said to me, why are you astonished? I will explain to you the mystery of the woman and of the beast she rides, which has seven heads and ten horns. The beast which you saw once was, now is not, and yet will come up out of the abyss and go to its destruction. The inhabitants of the earth whose names have not been written in the book of life. That should be a clue. From the creation of the world will be astonished when they see the beast because it once was, now is not, and is yet to come. Okay, I get it. You got a visual of a woman. She doesn't seem to be in a good spot. She's called an adulteress. She's called a prostitute. This is not a positive image. And then you have a beast. What's going on? Um, uh, we use images all the time. It's called branding. Uh, companies will pay lots of money to put an image so that when you think of their product, you think of their service, you think of, it, it invokes an emotion, it invokes something. So isn't it funny, in any commercial about anything to do with alcohol, there's a beautiful woman. Because if you drink this, you get her, right? It's, we see it all the time. Or even um, in our country, you'll see the word freedom and above it will be like an American flag or a bald eagle. If you look at the symbol, it speaks of freedom or 
liberty or whatever. It happens all the time. So these images seem strange to us. They're not strange, though, to the people who were first hearing this. I want you to see the contrast. Uh, you have the creator. God makes the heavens and the earth. Everything's good, beautiful, holy, right. But what's a distortion of the creator? It's a beast. So, so God makes things good. And the vivid imagery is there's something that's working against God's good and loving rule. And it's, it's beast-like. It's, it's not like, oh, a cute little puppy or a cute little kitten or whatever. No, this is disgusting to look at. Second image, so God is working, something else is working. There's a power working. And then the other image gets graphic as well. Uh, God, in the beginning, he makes Adam and Eve, they're in the garden, he walks with them. He brings the man and the woman into a loving relationship. And, and for this reason, a man leaves his father's house and is united to his wife and the two become one flesh. And then later on, the Bible tells us that one flesh thing that marriage thing is actually a picture of the greater reality. Paul tells us in Ephesians 5, he's talking about Jesus and the church. Whoa, what? The greatest graphic in the Bible when it comes to imagery of your relationship, my relationship with God, is marriage. God made us. He, he's different than us, but he made us in his image, and he wants to be united with us. So the beautiful picture in the Bible when we get this right is we're united with Christ. We are in one relationship with God. Things are good. Things are whole. We're close. And we're walking through life with God. What's a distortion of that? Here's the image. Take a husband, take a wife, throw a prostitute in the middle. Now you have a problem. So in the image here is the prostitute after a long, you know, committed through the good times or the bad times, relationship with, with, with the God? No, it's about money, it's about transaction, it's about feelings for a moment to feel good, and then I'm moving on. These two images are speaking to the same thing. God is working, there's an enemy working. God has beautiful relationship with his children, and the enemy offers something that is distorted. How do we know this? Verse 6 was the key. I saw that the woman, speaking of adulterous, prostitute, not a healthy relationship, was drunk with what? Alcohol? No. The blood of God's holy people, the blood of those who bore the testimony of Jesus. So here's what's happening. God is ultimately answering the question of evil and brokenness and sin. He's going to judge it. And what is he going to judge. He's going to stop those who are working against his plan to bring his loving good rule into the lives of his kids who are offering a fake and alternate and it's distorted. It's beast-like. It's prostitute-like. It's drunken-like. It's adulterous-like. It is not the way God created it to be. So the visuals are supposed to stimulate us to think something's wrong. I shouldn't I shouldn't, as a Jesus person, be in love with what's disgusting, the beast. I should, be in, I should be in love with God. I shouldn't be involved with the prostitute, the distortion. Again, these are, these are metaphors. And, and so what's the vision describing? We'll keep going. Verse 9. This calls for a mind with wisdom. In other words, this, this isn't going to come quickly, but we need to see this. 
And then he describes the seven heads or seven hills on which the woman sits. Just a helpful note, uh, Paul's writing to the church throughout the Roman Empire. Rome is the city of seven hills. So this is like, seems like metaphor to us, but they immediately, when they were listening to this, they, they're clued into what's happening here. Verse 10, there are also seven kings. Five have fallen, one, um, one is and the other is yet to come. And when he does come, he will remain for only a little while, so there'll be lots of leaders. The beast who once was, now is not, is an eighth king, so there's going to be a succession of rulers. He belongs to the seven and is going to his destruction. So all these leaders come, all these leaders go. Verse 12, the ten horns you saw are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but who for one hour will receive authority as kings along with the beast. Lots of leaders, hour, short time, they seem to rule. Verse 13, they have one purpose. They'll give their authority and power to the beast. So these leaders who are ruling are not really leading, they're leading under the authority of something that's bigger. Verse 13, they have one purpose. Uh, I'm sorry, verse 14. They will wage war against the Lamb. So all of these, these leaders are coming and going. They have power. But what are they doing? They're working against the Lamb. But the Lamb will triumph over them because he's the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. And with him will be his called, chosen, and faithful followers. I know imagery, poetry is really hard. I, I completely get it. But now you need to see what, what's happening here. A group of people in the church, 60, 50, 60 years after Jesus has risen, are asking the honest question. God, where are you? Where are you? We're following you, Jesus. You said you were going to return. Everyone thought it was going to happen really fast. But now it's decades. Where are you? And, and there is no power like Rome. We don't get that because we live in America and we have power. And then you have the European Union and they have power. And Asian countries have power. And China is a superpower. North Korea has power. I want you to visualize something. No one has power but Rome in their day. They can't fathom because Rome conquers every single kingdom. There is no place that they know of on the planet that stands up to Rome. Rome is growingly aggressive against the Jesus movement because Jesus' people are saying there's one Lord who's Jesus and we're going to follow him. And Caesar, who sees himself as a Lord, does not like anyone who has a competitor. And so God's people are wrestling with, okay, God, you're good, but your people are now being killed for the faith. Your people are losing their jobs for the faith. Your people are losing influence for the faith. Your people are being squeezed for their faith. Where, where are you? And in successive order, all these pictures visualize these kings are going to rise, these kings are going to fall. But these kings are really working for a beast. Okay, so you, you got the prostitute and you have the, the beast. What, so what's the vision all about? Now the women, woman is a great city. I want us just to keep uh, reading uh, verse 12. We'll say the ten horns of the ten kings, and then jump down to verse 15. The angel says to me, the waters you saw where the prostitute sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and languages. The beast and the ten horns you saw will hate the prostitute 
Okay, so we think that these people are working together, but they're not. They will bring her to ruin and leave her naked. They'll eat her flesh. They'll burn her with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to accomplish his purpose by agreeing to hand over to the beast their royal authority until God's words are fulfilled. And verse 18 is going to really help us. He waits till the end of the chapter, although when he writes there are no chapters and verses. He waits till this line. The woman you saw is the great city that rules over the king's of the earth. Okay, so it seems like you have this, this distortion, this prostitute and this beast, and they seem to be working together, and they're working against God's people, the lamb. We're told by John, don't worry, there's only one king of kings, one lord of lords. He's going to rule, and his people, us, are going to rule with him. But in the middle of this, you have a woman who is a great city. Uh, who is the great city, for them, there would have been absolutely one answer, and that would be the city of Rome, which represents the Roman kingdom. And, and you got to remember, why, why doesn't Paul just say, hey, God's going to defeat Rome? It's because he gets this vision. He's already in exile as a Jesus leader on an island. And in the spirit, he's caught up and he's given this revelation He's writing to churches who are all over the Roman Empire. He knows when he writes a letter, it's going to be read by other people. And as they read it in churches, it's going to go public. And what you can't say in his day, you can't just say, God's going to defeat Rome, period. That's going to get everyone killed. There is no Lord other than Jesus. But what he does use by the Spirit and imagery, they would have all seen it. The woman is the great city that rules over the kings of the earth. Rome is that power. There's no power like Rome. And what you need to see, again, this is an extension of what's gonna, God going to do with evil in the world. There was no power seen as bigger and more harmful than Rome. And if God can take care of Rome, and that's what he's saying here, then he could take care of every power and he's going to bring all powers under his power. This is where the future is, is headed. And by the way, you don't see this yet. When, when they're in these little house churches reading this letter, this is almost laughable because they have no power as a church, yet they're hearing a word from Jesus. There's a woman, distortion, doing evil. There's a beast, distortion. The visual there is the, the woman gets turned against the beast and the woman is destroyed. It's going to collapse, not from an outside power, it's going to collapse from within. Uh, by the way, side note, in history, that's exactly what happens a couple of hundred years later. Rome is destroyed. Those of you who studied history is destroyed. Ultimately, outside powers come in, but they're destroyed from within. There's so much corruption from within the superpower, that they implode from the inside out. By the way, that is the exact imagery you get here in the Bible. Uh, God is, is saying, uh, be careful, Jesus people. When you look around you and you think that someone's winning who's opposed to me, what, what they need to know and you need to know is there's only one king of kings, there's only one lord of lords. And those powers, they may seem to be powerful now, but they're going to fall. 
Uh, and that's, by the way, the picture that you get in chapter 18. Let's just, let's just keep reading. Again, I'm going to get to some things that talk to our life and talk to our experience. But let's just read chapter 18, the first uh, few verses. After this, I saw another great angel coming down from heaven. He had great authority and the earth was illuminated by his splendor. And with a mighty voice he shouted, fallen, fallen, is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling for demons and a haunt, a haunt for every impure spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable animal. For all the nations have drunk the maddening wine of her adulteries. The kings of the earth committed adultery with her, and the merchants of the earth grew rich from her excessive luxuries. Uh, I know this is a lot, but you have this beast. This beast is described with written on their forehead. There's Babylon, the great Babylon. There's this woman, and she's doing all sorts of evil. It implodes from within, and then a name is given, Babylon. And Babylon in the Bible, all throughout the Bible, is a picture given to the resistance to God's loving rule. So if you're hearing this for the first time and you know the Bible story, Babylon is not a name out of nowhere. Babylon's a real place. It's a real city. But ba Babylon goes back to the beginning of the Bible. In Genesis 11, there's the Tower of Babel. And it's a picture of what happened in the past. These people came together to build a tower up to God. We want to approach God our way. We want to do our thing. And they were resisting God's loving rule. And they, they got together to make themselves great and a name great for themselves. And God sees from heaven and God judges them by changing the languages. They scatter. He stops their schemes. Whenever people try to replace God in being God, God sees, God knows, God loves, God warns, and then God stops. God stops. Back in Genesis 11, people from trying to replace him and saying, I'm ruling, not you, God. We're going to do our own thing. And the rest of the Bible are other kingdoms that rise up. Egypt is described in the Bible by the prophets as Babylon. Oh, by the way, Egypt happens before Babylon. But as the writers look back, Egypt, Pharaoh, took God's people. Did he love God's people? Those of you who know the Bible know. He makes them slaves. The Egyptian pharaohs took God's beautiful people and made them slave labor to gain off of the, their hard work. And God steps in, hears the cries of his people, and judges Egypt and Pharaoh with these plagues that are indictments not against the people, but against the gods that the Babylonian uh, Egyptians worshipped. So the ten plagues, before you get the ten commandments and all that, are not like God being mean to people and sending them gnats and flies and locusts and the water turning to blood. These were the, these, these were the divinities. These were the gods that the Egyptians worshipped. So the creator says, people, why are you worshipping the created things? Why are you building a tower to yourself? to approach me, and he stops them. Then centuries later, the Babylonian people create a huge empire that attacks Israel and takes their land and destroys the temple. And if you read the prophets, eventually God steps in and stops the Babylonian empire. Here's my point. Babylon, in the Revelation, speaks to any attempt to resist God's loving rule. And wherever people 
are rising up to say, we want to be God. We're not happy with you being God, Jesus. We're going to do our own thing. God listens. God hears. God sees. God knows. God is patient. God's kind. God warns. And then God stops. This is why the end of the Bible is so beautiful, because what we're seeing is it happens in every generation. In every generation, countries rise and countries fall. And where there are people trying to resist Jesus' loving rule, Jesus is saying, there's going to be a time where I'm going to stop it everywhere, and then he's going to return, and he's going to rule and reign. Well, chapter 18, verse 4 uh, gives us a little bit about what's going to happen and how we respond, and we're going to move uh, soon to these three things that we can do. Uh, verse 4 of chapter 18, Then I heard another voice from heaven say, Come out of her, my people, so that you will not share in her sins, so that you will not receive any of her, what? Plagues. Interesting. Plagues we saw from Egypt. For her sins are piled up to heaven, and God has remembered her crimes, just like he remembered the crimes of Pharaoh. Give back to her as she has given. Pay her back double for what she has done. Pay her a double portion for her own cup. Give her as much torment and grief as the glory and luxury she gave herself. For in her heart she boasts, I sit enthroned as queen. I'm not a widow. I'll never mourn. Therefore, in one day, her plagues will overtake her. Death, mourning, famine shall be consumed by fire. For mighty is the Lord who judges her. Okay, uh, we're not going to read the rest of 18 because the rest of 18 are these um, prophetic woes. Woe to you, woe to you. It's going to happen, it's going to happen, it's going to happen. And so if you want some of the details, there's that podcast, a Revelation Conversation, and listen to the podcast on chapter 18. Steve and Tim do a great job of laying this out in detail. What I want us to get for now is what's the call to the church? And I think it's, it's centered on verse 4. Come out of her, my people, so that you won't share in her sins. Okay, let's just recap. You have all sorts of powers working against Jesus. Remember, Jesus died and rose again. But why didn't he just change things now? He's giving people an opportunity to come to him. To have right relationship. Because Jesus, you could be made right. It's like, like wedding. You could live close with God. You could walk with him. He could be your wisdom. Or you can follow the trajectory of every kingdom and culture that's not following the way of Jesus, and you could become your own God, you can do your own thing. And the call for the church is don't share. Here's why. The rest of 18 talks about utter ruin. In the end, Babylon stands for anyone, any place, any family, any couple, any country, any institution that tries to resist the loving rule of Jesus and do their own thing, hear this, will succeed for a moment. The king, notice, who's leading? Kings, kingdoms. They become rich. They become important. They become known. But in the end, they end up with ruin. And that is the result of anyone who says, you know what, Jesus, thank you very much, but no thank you. All right. Is that the only picture you get? No. Jump over to chapter 19. We're going to read the first couple of verses. And I want us to see how to live this out. Chapter 19, verse 
one. After this, I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for true and just are his judgments. He has condemned the great prostitute. He's, he's stopped Rome. He's stopped people who are bent on using and abusing people. Who has corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants. In verse 3, and again they shouted, hallelujah. The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. The 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God. Who seated on the throne and they cried, amen, hallelujah. Here's what I want us to get. The scene suddenly shifts. At the right time, God is going to judge those who are evil and those who are bent on avoiding the way of Jesus. And, and heaven already sees it. And so they're shouting out, 24 elders, the living creatures, everyone who's worshiping. Thank you, God. Hallelujah. You're doing what's right. Who wins in the end? God does. Do the kingdoms of this world win? Absolutely not. And you have to remember, please hear me, you have to remember the people who are hearing this are under the oppressive rule of Rome and they feel like they are defeated. And Jesus, through this revelation, says, no, you're not defeated. Our God reigns. And, and at the right time, you can trust that God is going to do what is right and he's going to put an end to Rome. So the question here is, before we think about us, is who is this written for? Is this written for these people in their day? Because they're literally under Roman rule. The answer is yes. I already said it. 300 years later, the Roman kingdom is ended. And, and what prevails out of it? The Jesus movement, Christianity, spreads all over the earth. And, and, and God defeats this power. So is it about, is all of this just like past history? Well, in one sense, yes. He, he did it. It really happened. But is there more? I, I think so. Is this about every age? You know, because Rome um, was defeated, but then other kingdoms rose afterwards. The church has been here for 2,000 years. Here's the good news. Every government on the earth comes and goes. The church is still here. Every government. Just read history. There is no successive a governing rule throughout all of time that surpasses the church. The church thrives and exists everywhere. Even under the most oppressive places on the earth. As a matter of fact, the Jesus movement is growing fastest in some of the most oppressive places on the earth. You cannot stop the way of Jesus. But these kingdoms come and fall. Is this about like a word to the church in every generation? That no matter who you're living under... If the power above you is not following God and doesn't value Jesus and his way, don't worry. I, I think yes. I think it's about more than just the first century in Rome. I think it's about every generation. But is this about the future? I thought, Jose, the revelation of Jesus is about the future. Is this about a country yet or a power yet to come that's ruling and reigning and God's going to stop that? That movement, when Jesus returns, I think the answer is absolutely yes. I think it's yes to all three. What God says once can be seen in multiple layers and levels. This was a real encouragement to the early church. This is an encouragement because the revelation has been read for 2,000 years as a book of hope. 
no matter who's on the throne of the human kingdom, Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And this is a sneak peek, I believe, into the future of what God's going to do. The question then becomes, Jose, great. Kingdoms, powers, beast, prostitute, evil, wrong. It's here, but it's going to be defeated. Thank you very much. What do we do now? This is where I want us to focus and we want to respond in worship, in communion, in, in humility, and repentance, and thanksgiving. Three things, and we've purposely done this one with the first week of uh, community groups. If you're uh, newer to the church, we gather in the winter for seven weeks and we talk about what we're hearing. And now it's the spring, and this is week one of our spring session. You here in the building have this on your chair. Take it with you. And these are questions designed to, for you to get the most out of this. And what I want us to focus in this week's discussion is on what we are supposed to do. And these, are, I think, are three things that you ought to tease out with some other people, write them down, and then talk about it this week. Number one, this is a call to passionately follow Jesus. Are we passionately following Jesus? The word in chapter 18, verse 4 was, come out from among them, my people, so that you won't share in their sins. Are we passionately following Jesus? Because what you see in chapter 17 and 18 are two groups. There are the Jesus people, and they're being oppressed for their faith. And then you have the kingdoms of this world. And no one seems to care, and everyone's getting rich, and everyone's oppressing people, and everyone's living for themselves. And it seems like, frankly, that's the better way. Can I just, can I remind you, uh, Jesus lover, that we're called not to compromise, but to stand out. And what we see is the church here is willing to stand up and be counted, and it's even costing them the adulteress is living off of their blood. Uh, the, the, the kingdoms around them are persecuting them, but Jesus' people are called to stand up and make their faith count. Is following Jesus the most important thing? Because if we are not careful, what's going to happen is our faith in Jesus is just going to become a thing. And then when you look at it, like, I got this, I got this, I got this, I got this, and I have my Jesus. And where does Jesus fit in it? And it's easy for Jesus to slip from primary to secondary and then down and down and down and down. Can you say that your following of Jesus is not perfect? Hear me. We're never perfect. But you're passionate about it. The call, because the kingdoms of this world will fade away. Let's just put it in our lingo. Do you know what? Today, you can be a success in the U.S. and ignore Jesus. And that ought to scare you to death. It ought to scare you to death. That you can live your whole life in your own power, in your own strength, doing your own thing, and at the end of the day, die rich and die. It ought to freak you out. That you, you could live your whole life and ignore Jesus, who's the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And this is the call to the church. Rome seems to be winning. Our culture seems to be winning. If you've been following Jesus for a long time in the U.S., it seems like the culture is winning and the church is losing. And don't believe that lie. It's a lie. Because in the end, those who live apart from Jesus and worship the beast, they're judged in the end. Those who stand up for their faith and are counted receive eternal life. Second thing, I think this is a call to stay awake. It's a call to, to stay awake. 
it's easy to go with the flow. And, and, and again, it's so challenging. The enemy doesn't even have to use overt attacks to get us sidetracked in our faith. Do you know what he does in our culture? In the first century, it was something different. I think for us here in America and in the, the more wealthy West, it's simple entertainment. The enemy, in order to keep us from passionately pursuing Jesus, puts us to sleep by getting us addicted to stimulating entertainment. And it could be live entertainment, which is non-existent right now. Uh, it, it's mostly on binge-watching entertainment. And so all the enemy has to do is throw in the pipeline, uh, just, you know, whether it's Apple Plus or whether it's Hulu or, or whether whatever social media platform you're on, or now you, now you can have discovery, or you, you could just binge and binge. And the enemy, all the enemy has to do in, in our world is keep us so distracted with even good things, nothing wrong with entertainment. Look, I'm not a prude, all right? And I've got my shows, and I like to watch. But at what expense, let me just ask you, in your pursuit of Jesus, is it passionate? If it's not, then the, the call is, Stay awake to what God's doing. You know God's speaking? In the middle of it, he's speaking to his church. He's speaking to his church here in the Revelation. And he's trying to speak to you and he's trying to speak to me. But if, if we're not careful, we'll get so consumed with living for the here and now that we neglect the greater thing. And the greater thing is that you belong to Jesus and I belong to Jesus and Jesus loves us and we're united with him and we're supposed to walk like a, a healthy Married couple, life arm in arm together and, and not far and distant apart. And if you feel like you're uh, far from Jesus, the call to you is, is stay, stay away. Keep asking and seeking and knocking and don't let the enemy keep you to a life focused just on the here and just on the you when the things of this world are going to pass away. What is it going to take for you and I to live wide awake to Jesus and not get lulled to sleep. Some people say, like, man, following Jesus, Christianity is just so boring and there's nothing to it. You're probably not actually following Jesus. You've received his mercy and his grace and his love. I'm not saying you're not a child of God, but you're actually not following because this is the great adventure. And there's so much to it. But if we're lulled to sleep and make faith this one little thing, I have my entertainment, I have my education, I have my this and that, and I have my little Jesus box, then of course it's frustrating. But that's not what Jesus is calling us to. He's calling us to stand up against the cultural tide that's trying to put us to sleep to the things of God. Finally, the last thing, this is a call to actively resist. Actively resist. Come out from among them. My people, so that you will not follow their sins. And so there ought to be within us this recognizing the world is beautiful. I'm not saying, I'm not trying to paint the picture that there's nothing good in our culture. There's nothing good in our, of course, God's given us all these beautiful things to enjoy. But he's called us to live with Jesus as the king and Jesus as the Lord and Jesus above all. And that means I am called to resist. Actively resist anything that stands against the way of Jesus. And by actively resist, especially in our Portland moment, I'm not saying violently protest. I'm not saying be that kind of person. And I'm not saying to be that kind of negative Bible thumper that's yelling at everyone and putting everyone down. What I'm saying is we ought to know what we believe about Jesus, grow in that, right? And grow to it to the point of conviction where we say, 
I understand that you would want to fill in the blank, but I'm not because I've, I found a better way. Look, I found a better way. So, hey, that, look, I love you and I care about you and we can totally be friends, but I am not going to actively participate in that because I don't believe that will honor Jesus. So we can't be so mixed in with the cultural flow that we don't stand out. And when I say stand out, I don't mean with eyes of hate or demeaning or pointing fingers. I'm saying with eyes of love, saying, look, I've, I've received grace of Jesus. And therefore, I used to, but I'm not going to anymore. Are, are, we, are we actively resisting sin? Or are we saying, well, everyone else is doing it? The problem with the everyone else is doing it is chapter 17 and 18 tell us it's going to lead to destruction. And so I don't want that for us. I know God doesn't want that for you. And so remember, when, we're, when, when they're hearing this, Rome is in total control. And so we need to remember that even though our cultural sway continues to move away from the love of Jesus and the way of Jesus and the teachings of Jesus, who should stand up for Jesus? It should be us. We can actually live for him and show the world a better way. And so I pray that for you. Recap. Babylon and the prostitute are, are pictures of every distortion and every, every attempt to follow God in your own strength. And, and we're, not that, we're not that kind of people. No, we're God's people. And so we're called to stand against that and for Jesus, which means the call today is to live passionately for him. How are we doing with that? The call today is to stay awake to what God's doing. Are we awake? Are we alert? Or have we been lulled to sleep mostly just by our own entertainment and our own just ordinary stuff? Uh, and are we resisting? If not, the call is to not cave in. And I believe that God wants that in you and he wants that in me. And so he's brought us here together and he's given us this ancient text to speak to us in the here and the now and to say, you know what? We can live as God's people. We can. And guess what? We have the Holy Spirit to enable us to do it. So if you've fallen short, and you're like, Jose, I'm more like Babylon. <laughs> like, I'm, 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 I'm not resisting. Okay, the word for you today is make today the marker. And I'm going to invite you, uh, if you're here in the room uh, on site, I'm going to invite you to stand on your feet. We're going to worship at home. I'm, I'm going to invite you to worship now in response. You can stand up to your feet now. And we're going to, uh, the bands are going to come and lead us. But this is our moment to, to make it count. And I'm thrilled that we get to be reminded of the amen hallelujah. The scene changes in chapter 19. And that's a reminder. The scene ought to change for us. While the world is slipping away, falling further from the love of God, we belong to Jesus. And Jesus is King and Lord. And, and He's our God. And he's walking with us. And I want us to live in that power this week. I know we can. So let's just make that commitment afresh this morning. Especially for those of us who realize, you know what? I look more like the world than I do like Jesus. Okay. Then let's make today the turning point. Let's pray. I'm going to worship in response. And in a few moments, we're going to take the bread and the cup and remember the power of Jesus. Lord, we thank you for these vivid images that remind us of your good love and your justice that's going to be seen at the end of time. But even now, Lord, we know that you're judging wickedness and sin and evil 
you're stopping it even though we don't see it in its fullness. We thank you, God, that you're trustworthy and we can give you our whole life knowing that you're going to do what's right and what's good with us. So now, Lord, in response to what we've heard, we want to worship. We want to see you as the high and lifted and exalted King. And we want to worship you not just with singing on Sunday, but with our lives. God, empower us as we worship you to live out our following of you no matter where the culture is going. We pray these things in Jesus' name. If you believe with me, say it. Amen. Let's worship.